0: Bible in your hand with me and open it, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number 6, and I want to read a couple of verses in your hearing. Now, this is a little bit of a different uh, message, a little different style of message, and I want to uh, essentially break this open, and we're going to just kind of jump out of the plane and see where this goes. Uh, If you would stand with me as we honor God's Word and we read 1 Corinthians, chapter number 6, and I'm going to have a variety of verses uh, that we're going to be sharing. I want to also welcome our online audience. We're always delighted to have you tune in and are so grateful for your presence today and ask that the Lord speak to your heart. Uh, appreciate the par- uh, prayer Pastor Brown has already prayed. And so let's read uh, a verse from the Apostle Paul, uh, chapter number 6, 1 Corinthians, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And then I love when the scripture gives commentary to let us know what is implied or meant by that. And notice what he says, who is in you, whom you have from God. I think we can underestimate that sometimes, that there's part of God inside of you. If you are saved and your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that there is part of God and his presence that, are, that is inside of you. And how many believe that ought to change us? Yes. That ought to have an impact on us. And he says, "...whom you have from God, and you are not your own." You are not your own. You, for you have been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen. You can be seated. God bless you. We're going to look at some other verses here in a moment. And I want to just kind of break this open for a few moments today. I, I want you to, first of all, know that I value your time and respect your position, your opinions, um, I, I stand before you today uh, not really on representing denominations. As a matter of fact, as most of you know, we work largely with non-denominational churches and some denominations as well. So I don't come today with credentials of a denomination. I don't come today with uh, a label. As a matter of fact, I kind of resist labels. Um, so I don't stand before you as a Republican or as a Democrat or as a uh, conservative or as a liberal I stand before you today as an ambassador for the kingdom of God so let's just kind of settle that right up front I don't presume nor do I even suggest that you accept everything I say as if it were straight from God Uh, but I do suggest that if you're an adherent to the word of God that as long as I stay in the word then you say amen and be okay with that all right (laughs) <laughs> All right. So, uh, so I don't really have no agenda here other than I want to help you navigate the season that we're in. And how many would agree with me that we are in a different kind of season? So I, I was trying to wrestle and think what kind of title was I going to use for this message? And so I came up with this Three fundamental goals and five critical ways to survive cultural craziness. I'm going to say it so you get a little sink in again. Three fundamental goals and five critical ways to survive cultural craziness. Can I get a crazy amen for the crazy culture that we're around? Yeah. America has changed and we're not the same country that we were even a few months ago. Actually though, we've been changing for a long time. There's a battle being fought and it's growing and is increasingly less subtle and more hostile. Day by day. When we see the radical groups taking to the streets with violence, riots, and attacks, we're seeing the fruit of ideas that have matured and are now demanding expression. But these issues and ideas have been issues and ideas for a long time. They become visible because of the deterioration in at least two social mainstays in our nation. And again, I, this may I don't want it to sound negative, but if you'll just allow me, look at your neighbor and say, "Give the preacher a little attitude until we see where he's going." OK? All right, so give me a little attitude. Now I'm not, uh, I have no uh, access to grind. I'm not here again with an agenda other than your blessing and your benefit. But I believe that we have seen the deterioration of two social mainstays in our nation: number one, the nuclear family, and number two, the church. We can get frustrated and upset and angry when we watch the news, no matter what brand you watch. And when you see that, they might not report it exactly the way you wish they would report it, or maybe they report it in a way you wish they wouldn't. But irregardless of that, we can get angry at what we're seeing in the streets of America and forget that we have a bit of responsibility in all those things that are happening. But let's focus for a few moments on the origin of some of these ideas. For years, these extremist ideas have waited quietly in the background... ...hidden in cloistered societies such as think tanks, political fringe groups... ...and the world of academics. But When they sensed an opening or a weakness in the culture... ...that was largely prepared and perpetrated by the the dissolution of the nuclear family... ...and of the disenfranchisement of the church... ...when they sensed that opening along with a host of other issues, they seized the opportunity and co-opted some movements and tried to become the driving influence in our current culture. Make no mistake about it, these movements are driven by an ideology that has seized upon an opportunity, and they've piggybacked on some just causes and common sense issues that we all would agree about and we would all understand and be sympathetic to and they seized on the sympathy of the population and the difficulty in trying to counteract them because of the subject matter and have it exploited and advanced their extremist positions. A lot of these ideas and theories have been based uh, in a, a way of thinking, a school of philosophy called critical theory, critical theory. There are a lot of splinters of this group, but the foundation of critical theory was Marxism and actually Freudian psychology and Marxism and originated after World War I back in the day and was largely perpetrated and set forth in a German school called the Frankfurt School where the ideas of critical theory were developed. And so here's what I did. I thought, well, I don't want you just to necessarily take my word for it. I wanted to just pull it out. So I just pulled the definition out of Encyclopedia Britannica online you can search it and look at it and this is how they define critical theory a Marxist inspired movement in social and political philosophy originating originally associated with the work of the Frankfurt School drawing particularly on the thought of Karl Marx which we know is kind of the father of communism and Sigmund Freud critical theorists theorist, theorist maintain that a primary goal of philosophy is to understand and help overcome social structures through which people have been dominated and oppressed. Believing that science, like other forms of knowledge, has been used as an instrument of oppression, they caution against a blind faith even to the scientific process, arguing that scientific knowledge must be not pursued as an end in itself, but through, uh, through trying to see how it can emancipate the human condition. Since the 1970s, critical theory has been immensely influential in the study of history, law, literature, and is replete in the social sciences. The social sciences. You say, what does that have to do with me as a Christian? Well. When you see what's going on, a lot of times what you're seeing, it may be cl- uh, cr- crouched in racial justice. And how many believe that we should all be equal under God? Amen. That's a, and I'll talk about that just in a moment. There, there, no one debates that. And no one debates that there should be equality and equal opportunity and all of those things that are foundational and fundamental to the Christian experience and the teachings of the Word of God. But what's happened is they've seized some of those those common sense issues, and co-opted them to expand their dogma and push forth their basic ideas. All Christians should desire social justice, freedom, and equality for all people regardless. As a matter of fact, that was the message in the ministry of Jesus Christ, largely. As a matter of fact, when he came out of the wilderness, after having been tempted by the devil, he appeared in Nazareth... And began to preach. And he quoted Isaiah chapter 61. And he says in Luke chapter 4 verse 18. And I'll quote it for you. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. The rub in this. That's not the rub. The rub in this is how do we achieve those goals. How do we lift oppression off of people? How do we lift the yoke of bondage and oppression off of the home and off of the family and off of layers of society? Well, Christians view it one way, and this extremist position held within what I would consider broadly painted the socialistic camp views it a little differently. Now, I'm going to get more to the Scripture here in a minute, but again, just stay with me. So I want to kind of lay the foundation. This particular brand of socialism, based on critical theory, for example, takes a diminished view of personal responsibility and focuses on the collective group rather than the individual. As Christians, for example, we believe in personal responsibility. It is literally intertwined into the deepest tenets of our theology. It starts with what we call free will, right? Where you have an ability, you are empowered by God to make a choice as to how you live your life that you make a choice as to how you conduct yourself and, and the behaviors and how you establish your family and, and, and all of that. And the truth is the very foundational elements of society God instituted when he instituted the family in Eden and then eventually the church in the New Testament. So as Christians, we believe in personal responsibility leading to personal accountability followed by repentance and an experience with a, listen, a personal savior. This experience motivates us to be personally responsible. And while there are a lot of people who have victim mentalities, we in discipleship would help leaders and and, and even people who are just believers that are coming into their faith to understand that you are responsible for your own actions. You are responsible for your decisions and you will not escape the judgment of God. The Bible teaches us that. There's only one way for you to escape the judgment of God, and that is to receive his price for sin and rebellion that was in the embodiment of his son on the cross of Calvary. That's how you escape the judgment of God. John says in one place that those who believe have escaped that, but those who do not believe, the wrath of God abides upon them. That's New Testament stuff right there. So this personal responsibility becomes the root of personal potential and achievement. And we see that as a goal that every one of you has intrinsic value. and Every one of you is, is, is in, endowed by your creator with the opportunity to matter and to, and to have be successful. however how you want to define that sex success to be but this socialism on the other hand views the collective and it often views so listen it often views social institutions simply as tools of oppression as a matter of fact in the tenets of critical theory is that every layer of society is nothing more than a tool to be used by the strong to oppress the weak Bottom line. Beginning with the family. And so through the development of this type of thinking, we saw a lot of isms develop in the last century. We saw humanism develop and feminism developed and there were a lot of isms that developed as spinoffs of this fundamental idea that society had developed to destroy and to bring into bondage and therefore it must be deconstructed and reconstructed in a way that offers a utopian opportunity for everyone to be equal but the fact of the matter is ladies and gentlemen these ideas have been tried before These ideas and this dogma has been built upon before, whether it's Stalin's Russia or whether uh, you you kind of name, I won't go through all the list. you you look at China, you look at a number of the countries who have embraced full-scale socialism that led to communism with the intent based on critical theory to bring people into freedom and liberty, and every time they have done it, it's wound up with an incredible exploitation and an exchange of oppression from one system to the other. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you today that systems do not have the ability to victimize people. Many of you have been wounded in your families or in your home. You know that the home can be destructive. But that wasn't God's intent. God's intent is that your home and family be a place where you could learn value. You could develop a sense of worth. And you could develop your potential. That's God's plan. There's a problem though that entered into that whole process. It's called sin. And once we deal with sin, then we can begin to see improvement in the environments of our social structures. Can I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, today we can exchange one type of government for another. But until we deal with the intrinsic issue of sin, we're not going to see improvement in the human condition. The thing that brings improvement in the human condition is when we realize that all of us have been sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And among us there is none righteous, no, not one. But God laid upon him the iniquity of us all and the judgment of us all at Calvary. I mean, that's a, that's a button I could push the preach button on um, for a minute, but let's just, let's just continue to develop this just a little further. All right, they, uh, they use a number of hot-button terms, and if you look at them, they have been used historically. Uh, they are not new terms. They have been used historically, though the terms may have been a bit different, yet the application is somewhat the same. One of the great tools of a critical theory is political correctness. And it relies on a sociological principle called homeostasis. And that is the idea that the pressure exerted by the whole on the individual caused the individual to comply and to fall in form. It's called political correctness. Um, if, you're, if you're a student today and you want to study about it, you can largely find the work on this subject of homeostasis in the study of family systems in the study of family systems, political correctness. Group identity is another another term that's often utilized. Uh, Individualism is disregarded and considered insignificant against the backdrop of the greater good uh, in group identity. Uh, The deconstruction movement is largely based in the school of critical theory. The idea that history can be erased and should be as a tool for social change. And then another term that's often used that some of you may have heard is called cancel culture. That opposing views should be stomped out by mobilizing culture to demand there be no speech from an opposite point of view. Okay, so that's our sociological anthropological lesson today. Uh, let's, let's, let's break out of this and move into the three priorities, and the five things. Ideas are dangerous. They always have been. They they fuel social change. What you believe matters. What you believe matters. What we believe defines our perspectives on everything from life and family to God, truth, and justice. But what happens when we believe a lie? that the core, beyond critical theory, the truth is the core of it is atheistic humanism. Humanism, I would suggest to you from my perspective, is a religion. What it does is it takes God that that is often not believed in, it takes God off the throne and replaces God with you. And you become the object of your worship. It's called idolatry from a theological perspective. And a lot of us, A lot of, uh, I should say, us in a general sense of the world that we're living in would rather worship ourselves than acknowledge anything higher or greater than us. But this is where we are, and this is the reason I read this passage to you in your hearing that Paul penned in, in 1 Corinthians, is if you are a Christian, your options are pretty much few. And you have to decide where you're going to stand. You're going to have to decide, I believe increasingly in the days ahead, you're going to have to decide, are you an all-out, all-in, sold-out believer of Jesus Christ? Have you drunk the Kool-Aid of Christianity completely, or are you going to be against God? Are you going to worship yourself and all of its fruit in humanism and socialism and all the isms that have developed that shake their fist in the face of God? We as a church, I believe, in the day in which we're in, are poised with this decision. And I just wanted to remind you that if you're a believer today, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, that you were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you are not a representative of anything but Jesus as a believer. And so let me just deposit a couple of three ideas in relationship to that. First of all, we're fighting a real devil that hates God, hates his people, and hates everything that's true. That he goes about as a roaring lion seeking to devour, to steal, and to destroy. So it should not surprise us when he attacks our faith, the things that we love, and the people we love. His goal is chaos, not order. It's division, not unity. It's destruction, not the opposite of destruction. How many would he gogs that with me? How many believe there's a real devil out there and he ain't kidding? But here's the thing I want you to understand about the devil is the devil's not equal with God. Devil's not. It's not like this, this parody where, okay, we got good and evil on one side. We got God and the devil. That's not how it works. As a matter of fact, Lucifer was just an angel that blew it and got kicked out of heaven and he ain't got over it yet. And because you are a representative of heaven, he not only hates God, he hates you. He hates your family. He hates your marriage. He hates everything that you hold dear that's in alliance and in agreement with the Word of God. And he is a real adversary. He's not some sort of mythological creature or somebody, some influence, some dark influence that somebody made up. He is a real entity, has a real personage, and he has an incredible large-scale kingdom of fallen angels that fell with him in rebellion who are out there working to advance his purpose. And you are in conflict. You stand in the way. Are y'all in the room with me? You stand as part of the body of Christ, as the believers in Jesus Christ. You largely stand in the way of what he considers his opportunity for world domination. This is why you cannot be silent. This is why you cannot be reserved. This is why you cannot vanish into the background. You have to stand for Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about necessarily with a you know a sign and on a picket line. I'm talking about with your behavior, your lifestyle, your commitment, your voice, your money, the way you live your life. Are y'all in the room with me this morning? We've preached about this for years, but y'all, it's getting real. Not that it hasn't always been, but it's a bit more acute. So the first thing is we have a real devil. Number two in that process, and I'll get to my three things. This is not them, so just bear with me a minute. The second thing we have to acknowledge is that we are going to experience this conflict in three arenas. The first arena is from the world, just the world how does the devil appropriate we again we can watch television we can point fingers and we can say wow I don't understand why they think that we can do all that but the fact is we intersect with this conflict in three areas number one the world what we see on television a godless system that we all have to deal with Uh, and you know if you think wow I don't know that seems a bit overstated I've got a a deal I just printed it out because it's just been presented to what we assume is the president-elect we'll see how this all turns out But it's just a document that's just been presented, 28 pages long, called Secular Democrats of America, Restoring Constitutional Secularism and Patriotic Pluralism in the White House. And it is a step-by-step manifesto on how the new administration ought to relate to the church, to believers, and what they call the Christian nationalist movement. It's just being presented to the new administration right now. So if you think, oh, you know, Dr. Brasley, you're just off on this. You know, you've gotten political on us. 25 years you've been among us, and we've never heard you do that. Well, listen, I, I, I have a right to my political opinions, but I'm talking about the kingdom of God right now. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. I'm talking about being ambassadors for the kingdom of God. See there's a time when I was a kid growing up My dad was a pastor There was an element of respect in the community When dad would walk in the room Now he was a great man of God He had great integrity He was known for all of that And there was an an element of respect that went with it But how many know that has dissipated from our communities There is now a hostile environment There is a hostile posture That is being assumed by secular society Against Christianity And the point is, is I don't think that should surprise us It's always been that way And we have to be ready for it and know how as believers that we should stand. So we are going to see this battle transacted at the world stage in a godless system and a society, a world government. But then there's an issue because it gets more difficult because the second arena that this is being fought out is in my own flesh. And I don't want to blow your theological halos off, but how many know that the devil has an ally in you? I think it was Flip Wilson or somebody. You say, "Oh, the devil made me do it." Well, what he was saying is my flesh. Jesus told his disciples at one moment, he said, "The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak." So, what we have to acknowledge is, you could be, listen. You might have been saved since you were three years old. You might have been speaking in tongues since you could before you could say "goo goo gaga." Ga. I don't know. But let me tell you, no matter how long you've been saved or how sanctified you are, the the devil still has an ally in your flesh. Through the appetites of your flesh, the lust of your flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eye, all these things, as long as you're in a mortal body, are going to be an area where this battle is transacted. So it's not just with socialism and people riding in the streets that I see this conflict. The truth is I have to deal with that conflict right here. Right in the side of me. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 7. When I would do good, evil is present with me. That that I shouldn't do, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, after he gives us this list. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But he didn't stop there. Verse 1 of chapter 8 picks up and says, I thank God through Jesus Christ that there is now no no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. But he qualifies it, doesn't he? Who walk in the spirit and not according to the what? To the flesh. The third arena that we see this being transacted out is in the spiritual realm. Where we're fighting spiritual warfare in heavenly places. In the realm of the unseen. So this conflict, ladies and gentlemen, my point in saying that is this conflict is not just there and then. It's not just because we're in a town of 7,500, we don't have to deal with it because it's only happening in the megacities of America. The truth is this conflict may be seen there being played out from a worldly system in, on, in the media and in bigger places, but it's also being played out right in your house through your own flesh. It's not about, can I say to you today, it's not about deciding what your political position is. It's about deciding who's Lord of your life. And that's a very personal battle. And then as I read in the beginning text this morning, thirdly, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So when I was thinking about this and kind of been studying on this the last couple of weeks, I thought, okay, so the conditions of today, the the general hostility that we see in the political arena aimed at Christians, it's been... Democrat versus Republican and Republican versus Democrat. But we're largely seeing a mutation where it's now going to be the political system against Christianity. That's not that different from the first century and the environment in which Jesus was dealing. As a matter of fact, if you look as he's finishing up his days on earth, and if you look at maybe from about chapter what, 13 or 14 of John on, that, all that, that next up to 21 all happens in one night. Essentially, all of that book, a third or more of the Gospel of John, is devoted to one night. And Jesus delivered some powerful stuff in that that encounter with his disciples that night that he was with them, the night he was betrayed. One of the things he does is he prays. Now, we talk a lot about the Lord's Prayer. That's recorded in Matthew chapter 6. But the truth is, that's really not the Lord's Prayer. That's your prayer. The Lord's Prayer is recorded in John chapter 17. And in John chapter 17, the chapter closes. Of course, you know, the translators put the chapter marks in. But the chapter closes by saying, in this world you will have tribulation. But rejoice because I've already overcome the world. Amen. And then he goes into that great prayer. So when Jesus was faced with a similar situation that we are faced with today. And when he knew that his disciples were largely going to be confronted with the same kind of social and political destruction that we are being threatened with today, how did Jesus pray and what did he pray for? How many believe that would be of interest to all of us to know that? Let me give you three priorities of Jesus' prayer in dealing with crazy culture. Three priorities that Jesus prayed. First of all, in those first few verses... You'll find that he prayed that he would be glorified with the the Father. And what I take that to mean, ladies and gentlemen, is he knew that the moment of his glorification was about to happen. He wasn't really speaking, I don't believe, of his resurrection. He was speaking of the sacrificial death that he would die on the cross. And here's when he was praying. He says he finishes that by saying, In this world you'll have tribulation, but rejoice because I've already overcome the world. That's the last thing he said to the disciples in that upper room in that moment before he prayed. And then the scripture says when he finished these words, he lifted his eyes toward heaven and he began to pray. And let's look at some of that prayer. Flip over with me if you would very quickly to John chapter number 17. John chapter number 17, let me push through it quickly. Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. So there, that's a clue that the glorification he's about to talk about is about a moment in time that's about to happen. The hour has come. He said, this is it, Lord. All of history's planning. All of the foundational ideas that you had before time began. Everything you imagined that you would accomplish in my death on the cross that would bring you glory is about to happen. Father, let's do this thing. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. And you'll find out that the first prayer of Jesus in that moment faced with the things, ladies and gentlemen, that we are largely faced with is that Jesus Christ would still be glorified and that the Father would get glory through the cross of Christ and the redemptive work that he accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. That tells me you know what my posture is You know largely what my messages are Have always been and will always be No matter who's in the White House No matter who is running Wall Street No matter who's producing movies I'll tell you the message Philip Brasfield is going to be preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified As the hope of the world while I've kind of gone through this whole foyer today of social of these social realities, it's been to bring you to one point that the only hope and the only solution is that you would give God glory in your life. Your, your job is not to be a great Democrat or a great Republican. Your job as a believer is to be a great Christian. Okay, so I'm, I'm not upset with anybody, you know. Uh, Father, glorify yourself. I would cross-reference that in another John passage in chapter 3 where he's talking to Nicodemus, who was a man of the system and establishment that came by night. And Jesus gives him that conversation that we all talk about and are familiar with and about you must be born again and those things. In that encounter, he gives him the centerpiece of the scripture. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son but the context of John 3:16 is an interesting insertion that Jesus made in the passage where he referenced before Nicodemus the fact that the children of Israel had been bitten by serpents in the wilderness this serpent caused a fiery burning pain It caused an incredible suffering for the person that had been bitten by the snake. Why had they been bitten by the snake? Because they'd rebelled against God and they'd worshipped themselves through idolatry. And because of that, God released fiery serpents among them and many of them were bitten and in the process they were suffering. And God spoke to Moses when the people had said, hey, we messed up big. And go, Moses, talk to God and find out what happened and how we can fix it. God, Moses went to God and God responded to him. He said, make a bronze, listen, make a bronze image of the snakes that have bit them and put it on a pole. It was important that the image of their redemption looked like the thing that had bit them. And he says, when they look to the serpent on the pole, instantly they will be healed of the venom that's destroying their body. Isn't it interesting that Jesus inserted that into that moment where he is speaking with Nicodemus. And he's about to get to that, yow. Yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have, have everlasting life. But the phrase perish in that verse is related to the perishing of the people in the wilderness who in their rebellion and worshipping of themselves had been bitten by the serpents of sin and were being destroyed by the incredible fiery venom that it brings. And he said if they will look to the serpent they will be healed. He said in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that those who believe in him would not perish we quoted and we put it on our our refrigerator and we put it on our our computer laptop screen and that's wonderful but now you know the rest of the story The, 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 the part about God loving the world was sending a remedy for the bite of sin how many know we have snakes among us I said we in America have snakes among us in many ways, and many reasons, they're here because we've allowed the door to be opened and some have been bitten. But thanks be unto God that you can still look at the snake. You say, brother, are you calling Jesus a snake? No, the snake looked like what it was that had bitten them, almost killing him. That's why God became a man. He had to become like us or we would never be able to be like him. Are you all in the room with me? He became like us in every way, yet without sin, there was no venom in him. He was the miracle on the pole. And he said in another place, I know it's important to him because he referenced it again, I think in maybe John chapter 12, where he said that if I be lifted up, I'll draw. You see, saints, when we're lifting up Jesus, the prayer of Jesus, what was Jesus' priority in times of chaotic craziness, society, and political? He said, Lord, lift me up. Lift me up. That was your plan from the beginning because in it you, were, you received the glory. It wasn't like he's an egomaniac just wanting everyone's attention. He knew that he was the remedy for the venom of sin that was biting us all in rebellion. And he said, this is the moment we've been waiting on, Father. All the years, hundreds of years and prophets and writings of Scripture have all spoken and looked to this moment. And now it's come. Now glorify yourself as you glorify me. He says that he prays, and I believe that if it's good enough for Jesus to pray, then it ought to be our prayer. God, I don't want to be known for my label. I don't want to be known for my politics. I want to be known when people see me. That was a man who followed Jesus Christ. That was a man who walked in in obedience to the commands of the Lord. That was a man who was a disciple of Christ. The second thing that we see that Jesus prayed for begins in chapter 17, verse 6. I've manifested your name to men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and I have kept your word. They have kept your word. Now they have known all, that all things which you have given to me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them. And have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You understand how powerful it is when we see Jesus praying to the Father? You're getting a glimpse into the heart of God in these situations and circumstances. In the process, he goes down. Let me edit this for the sake of time. I've given them, verse 14, your word in the world. Notice what he says. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do, notice what he says. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. But that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I, he says it again, he reiterates it. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. It's an old cliche, ladies and gentlemen, but can I say to you that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. My dad used to say, Who wants a high class job on a sinking ship? Who wants to be captain of the Titanic? We can spend our entire life trying to play happy and be nice, and we should be. That's not what I'm saying. But we, should, we can try to please a world that has already rejected God and his Christ. And we can get so caught up in the fear of men that we can try to please people that are part of a worldly system that's not going to make it. It's, it. it's quiet, but it's still, it's still true. I'm just reading the scripture to you. He said, I do not pray that you would take them. And then in verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am. So what is his prayer? Sanctify them. It means set them apart. Sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. In that passage, and I won't read it all, he even says in one place, he says, I'm not praying for the world, Father. <laughs> That's Wow. Didn't you just tell Nicodemus that you came to the world because you love the whole world? And in this crunch moment, you're not even praying for the world. He said, I'm praying for those who believe. I mean, I, I don't know how you want to process that, but that's the words of Jesus. I'm not saying we shouldn't be good citizens. In fact, I believe that's our Christian duty, to be good citizens. But don't be seduced by political spirits that will try to get you into a battle with people that are not your enemy. The devil is your enemy. The devil is your enemy. People are not your enemy. Ideologies may be things that we disagree with. And I've set forth a lot of them today. But there's no man that's my enemy. My enemy is Satan and Lucifer. I fight the battle with him in spiritual heavenly places. In my own flesh. And I must contend for my Christianity and my faith in a worldly system. And Jesus said, set them apart. While I I wonder sometimes, and I'm a church man, I mean that's what I do, that's my life, but I wonder sometimes how much energy we have invested trying to be approved by a world when Jesus prayed that we would be set apart. The third thing Jesus prayed in this moment begins in verse 20. And I'll just read a couple of verses. I do not pray for these alone, but all those who will believe in me through their word. Wow, big encompassing prayer, beautiful. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus prayed that the Son would be glorified through the redemptive story. That the church would be, the individual believer would be sanctified. But then Jojo, his final part of that prayer was that the church would be unified. What was Jesus praying for when he faced these kinds of days, ladies and gentlemen? He was was praying that the message of the cross would be lifted up. Like Paul when he said, I may go in chains or I may go as a citizen, but this that I will stand in the imperial courts in Rome and declare the gospel of my Savior. That was Jesus' prayer. And he said that each of us as individuals would be set apart and that collectively as a group we would be unified. That we would be unified. You've probably seen this done before, but I, and I left my paper at home. But imagine I just wrote my hand as a piece of paper. This is for, this, that's Arkansas. This is where. I work to get it out, y'all, but sometimes it just seeps through. You know what I'm saying? It's, this is where, it's not like Cass always corrected me when I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wash the car. <laughs> she said, You're not going to wash it, you're going to wash it. <laughs> oh, my. Anyway, imagine I wrote my name on a piece of paper and I folded it. This is your safe position in these days. And then imagine my Bible was Jesus Christ. And I put that paper in the Bible and close it. That's how salvation, That's how grace works, incidentally. The paper's not good. The name on it's not any good. But it's made good because of where it's at. It's in the book. You understand what I'm saying is if you're not careful in this seductive culture, politics and the pressures will pull you out of the book. Jesus' prayer, when he was faced with what many of us are facing, if not all of us are facing today, is that we would stay united. We're we're working with everybody who loves Jesus. They may call themselves Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, every branch of Pentecost, it don't matter. And I'll tell you in the days ahead, you watch, you watch, mark my words, in the days ahead, that stuff's going to get less and less important because the pressure's going to get turned up on the church. I believe that. And how are we going to survive? We're going to survive by being sanctified, glorifying Jesus, and being unified as the body and staying in the book, staying in the Word, staying in the Word. All right, so let, let me wrap this up. Uh, stand with me, if you would. That's three priorities of Jesus. Let me give you five quick ways. I'm going to have you do it on your feet because I won't do it. It won't take long. Say, so, okay, Brother Brassfield, then what do I to do? What am I supposed to do? What do I do? Five things. Number one, know the truth. Everybody say, know the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8 this way and powerfully. He says, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples after all. As a matter of fact, you were my disciples. He says it this way, and the translators put it this way. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. But he didn't finish there. What does he say? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. When I'm talking about the truth, y'all, I'm not talking about spending hours and hours and hours at night on the Internet digging up the latest conspiracy theory. That's not what I'm talking about. No. If you're not careful, you'll get seduced. And you'll wind up standing in the wrong place even if you're right in your position. Don't do that. I'm talking about the spirit of truth. Know the truth. What, what was termed this way by Jesus' on mouth. The way, the truth, and the life. Surrender it to him as Savior, not just, but not just Savior, but as Lord. And he will guide you, listen, with a whisper and a nudge. There'll be a still small voice that will be unleashed inside of you that will give you that sense of what you should say, what you should do, and how you should act in that moment. That was his promise. The Holy Spirit will become your internal compass, showing true north. And with this knowledge, you can navigate every situation and circumstance. Number two, plant yourself firmly in the book. Stay in the Word. Read it. Are y'all getting the idea that this Christianity we're moving into in this new season is not going to be a—it's not going to be a consumer type Christianity? Where no, no, there's going to be more ask of the church. The the, the, the culture is going to demand. Where are you on this issue? Where do you stand, and why? Stay in the Word. Read it. Listen to it. Meditate on it. The psalmist said in 119, verse 60, the entirety of your word is truth, and every word of your righteous judgments endures forever. You want to build your life on something that will stand long after America's gone? And Jesus said, sanctify them with your truth, for your word is truth. Number three, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The first command Jesus gave to his disciples on resurrection day and the last command that he gave them before he ascended to heaven. After his time with them on earth. Was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew conflict would come. He knew persecution would come. He knew controversy would come. He knew that they would be faced with political dynamics. That they didn't understand what the real answer was be from a, would be from an earthly standpoint. So he said here's the answer. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number four, stay connected to those of like precious faith. We need each other. I know there's a risk right now, and I don't minimize it. I understand the pandemic. But I'm going to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the church is essential. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking. The assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much more as you see that day approaching. Amen. If you're here or if you're watching online and you say, Well, Brother Rachel, I'm not here because I have an issue. We understand that. I, I'm not making that point even. You follow your conscience and follow, you know, follow what you feel comfortable with with your family. No argument there. But do not forsake the community of the saints. Do not forsake the community. Every predator on the Serengeti separates victims from the herd and then attacks, and they are helpless. Do not forsake, at some level, the assembly of yourselves together. And then finally, practice your faith unashamedly and be prepared to do it in public arenas. And Jesus said it would happen, but he said that he would be with you and he would give you the words to say at that moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit that's in you. Amen. I have to close with a passage, and it was a sobering passage when I read it. But yet, I think I think it's one, I think it's one that's worthy of remembering. Second Peter chapter two says, "And turning this, so I'm going to just say this this way: Be lot in the world, be lot in Sodom." You may say, Brother Brassfield, I mean, this, this thing's happening around us. What do we do? We'll be Lot in Sodom. This is how Peter the Apostle characterized Lot in Sodom. Notice what he says. And turning, this is speaking of God, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, God condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterward would live ungodly. Wow. You ever thought about the big statements that God makes? That's a big statement. That He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, turning them into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making example out of them afterward on those who would choose to live in that way. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that right, this is Peter's words. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver. And this is where the promise came. Then he says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. New Testament writ. New Testament. Belot in Sodom. I can't promise you that we will not move toward an environment that would be comparable with Sodom and Gomorrah. The world system might see to that. But I'll tell you, God's always had a Daniel. He's always had a three Hebrew children. He's always had a lot. He'll always have a remnant. He's always had people who wouldn't bow and wouldn't, buy, but, but, uh, wouldn't serve, who wouldn't give, give to the, the idols of the world, and they also won't burn. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you today. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share with our church family, God, and I pray that it's not been uh, uh, seized as an opportunity to just have my say. God, that's not my heart. Lord, my heart from an apostolic standpoint is to prepare them, to give them a place to stand. Pastor's done that so wonderfully, Lord, in these last services and always does with sound teaching of the word of God. But as Paul said to the Romans, that I could just contribute some spiritual gift. Some spiritual moment. I pray for these folks, Lord, and their families, their children, their grandchildren. I'm a witness and a testimony of the grace of God and what you can do given time. With willing people who seek you. And I pray, God, in these turbulent days, in these days where pressures are coming from every standpoint. That you would help them, Lord, to be girded with the full armor of God. And that they would live as a victorious, sanctified church in these untoward days. In Jesus' great name, amen, amen. God bless you.